Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. It's me, Maria Norris, and this is episode 15 of Enemies of the People. Can you believe it? I have to pinch myself sometimes. Our guest today is Dr. Annie Kelly. Annie is a researcher, a journalist, and a podcaster working on anti-feminism, the far-right conspiracy theories, and the anti-vax movement. She is the UK correspondent for the podcast QAnon Anonymous and the writer and host of the podcast Vaccine, the Human History. On this episode, Annie walks us through the links between the anti-vax movement, anti-feminism, and conspiracy theories. Also, you'll hear us mentioning a few times during the episode how glad we are to finally be talking. And that's because we had to reschedule that conversation so many times, we were finally happy it worked out. So, without any further ado, here's Annie. My name is Annie Kelly. I did a PhD about digital anti-feminism and the far right, which I completed in 2019. And I'm currently a podcast journalist and the UK correspondent for the podcast QAnon Anonymous, which I should stress here is an anti-QAnon podcast, because I know the name can sound a little ambiguous. It's ambiguous perhaps in the name, but once you start listening, it's pretty clear where you guys stand yes, on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't make any secret of it. <laughs> no, I wanted to ask, well, there's lots of questions I want to ask, but I wanted to start with um, with vaccines, actually. And the reason why I wanted to start with vaccines is because a few days ago I was in the playground with my daughter and I got to chatting with one of the other parents in the playground. And and I started chatting about how um, unfortunate it was that the vaccines were still not approved for children as young as my daughter. She's three. Mm -hmm. And the parent turned to me and said, I would never give my child a vaccine, especially not this vaccine. And I wasn't shocked because anti-vax sentiment is so prevalent in the kind of area that I spend my days in researching, you know, on, mm. on the alt-right and white supremacy, but to encounter in the playground in England was perhaps unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really one of the most socially acceptable kind of anti-vax sentiment is the the parental anti-vax sentiment, I suppose, you know, the kind of I wouldn't do that to my child you see that like you see that everywhere and not just in very hardcore anti-vax groups right you can you can actually go to mainstream news sources and find people saying that and there's all sorts of reasons for why that is kind of some historical some social I think but I do find it really interesting how it's much anti-vax sentiment is considered quite sort of low status but we do allow i think for a bit more sympathy towards parents who are not sure about vaccinating their children is the root of the covid anti-vax movement as it were the same as the entire anti-vax movement or there is something different about the uh, and i'm not talking about vaccine hesitancy that's different some a lot of people have a vaccine hesitancy and they can be reached but it's the, the anti-vaccine sentiment mm -hmm. around covid is it something specific to the situation or does it play on the larger anti-vax movement so I think in this country, there has always been a, a small but relatively constant anti-vax uh, movement. Do you know, and this leads all the way back to Andrew 
Andrew Wakefield's discredited paper about the MMR vaccine, which really uh, revitalized a movement that was pretty small on the ground, essentially, here in the UK. And so, you know, those people, they were small but organized, I would say. And they there was no chance, essentially, once the COVID pandemic started, that, you know, talk began of the possibility of a vaccine that those people were going to take it. But I do think what we see nowadays is actually a much bigger and more disparate movement than just that that small group of dieharders, so to speak. We see people who are responding to, for instance, anti-lockdown sentiment and the anti-lockdown movement and have been sort of corralled into anti-vac belief and sentiment that way. Now, I should really be clear, and I I always make sure to say this when I'm talking about anti-vax movements in the UK, is that it's still relatively small compared to other countries in Europe, certainly compared to America. We actually do not have a very big anti-vax movement here, even with all of these different disparate elements. And that's not to say that they don't make a lot of noise. And it's not to say, actually, that they don't make a lot of damage. Yes, we've had a really successful vaccine uptake here, but we are also looking at a group of people who have essentially been very strongly disinclined against public health measures. And that has long-term impacts just as much as it does with the immediate impact of who's going to get the vaccine. We also need to be thinking in the long term about, will these people vaccinate their children for just the ordinary vaccines that we we give newborn babies and things like that? Will they be more disinclined in the future to not accept public health advice that's not to do with vaccines? There's a really like long-term danger, I think, that this group poses because they are now very well organized and they also all know how to find each other and how to spread information incredibly quickly using Telegram and Facebook and Instagram and all the rest of it. Would you say that the anti-vaccine and the anti-lockdown movement, could it be seen as a type of radicalization in some way? Yeah, absolutely. And that's not to say that everybody who's anti-lockdown is an extremist. There are, I think, interesting and non-conspiratorial arguments against lockdowns, of which I don't necessarily agree, but I'm not saying that they're, you know, therefore kind of dangerous radicals and all the rest of it. I should say here, I've attended a couple of anti-lockdown rallies by now, and I've interviewed people there. So I'm sort of speaking from what it feels a bit like on the ground, but Certainly, when you talk to people there, there's a whole spectrum of belief, you know, right through far from COVID is a hoax, you know, 5G is what's making us sick, to people who just, you know, just say, I don't think lockdowns are, you know, the right answer. And or um, more commonly, they say, you know, I'm really against vaccine passport. I think that's a really bad policy and I'm here to express my dissent. But even those people often have a slight conspiratorial element you know to the things that they say they'll often say things like well covid death rates aren't as bad as they're made out to be do you know which is the makings of a conspiracy theory if not a fully articulate confident conspiracy theory and this has i'd say this strand of belief has really uh, grown more confident and more vocalized in the movement because when you 
say something like that when you say it's not as bad as it's been made out to be there's a whole plethora of reasons for why that could be right some of them not necessarily conspiracy theories in the kind of fully confident bill gates 5g etc vein but you are looking for reasons for why that is and you're looking for answers and you're also in a movement that is only too happy to give you several different competing answers so you will necessarily be surrounding yourself by content of that type And this isn't, I think, to say, I I run the risk of just saying, you know, just believe everything the government and, you know, media authorities tell you, which I hope that anyone who knows me knows that that's not really what I believe. I think scepticism, particularly with kind of narratives that from authority are a really healthy human impulse. But it's more to say that that's an ordinary human impulse that many, many people feel. But the network itself of the anti-lockdown movement is going to expose you certainly to a lot more conspiratorial narratives. What I find fascinating about all of this, it's a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, there was a report by researchers at UCL University College London looking at the PREVENT program and how it's being implemented in schools. And one of the findings of the report is that for the first time, teachers were reporting a lot of students talking about and promoting conspiracy theories in the classroom. And they didn't know how to deal with it because it doesn't fall into any of the pre-existing training of of radicalization and spotting extremism, which I think is a huge failing because conspiracy theories play a key role in, in, in the radicalization process. And one of the most popular ones was that was a vaccine one was that Bill Gates had put microchips in the vaccine. And for me, the fact that this is children, children that are saying this in the classroom, obviously they're picking it up from somewhere, from their parents, from Facebook, from social media. But for me, that was the biggest illustration of how, even though this movement, as you said, is smaller in the UK than it is in Europe and it is in the US, that it is starting to take root if it's getting to the point that teachers are picking it up in the classrooms. Absolutely. And it's so social media savvy, you know, one of the unintended consequences I think of social media crackdowns nearly always is that you get a movement which is much more savvy on how to use social media in order to propagate arguments and ideas and things because they're constantly running up against a kind of test barrier right of you know not getting struck down not getting banned so they kind of learn they do almost a crash course in and like rhetoric in how to kind of you know make your point as quickly and as quietly as possible using all sorts of tricks that to avoid censors and things like that and often the main goal is to avoid censors but often you are also working on how to make something as shareable and as copyable and as spreadable I think only one of those was like an actual word, get my gist, <laughs> as possible. And that's not to say, you know, therefore social media crackdowns are bad. I think it is just a really interesting unintended consequence for both the alt-right, who I've written about before, but also, uh, yeah, the anti-vax movement as well. When when this one of our guests in the, in the podcast is Ashton Kingdon, who's a researcher at the University of Southampton, and she looks at the far right and white supremacy online, especially when it comes to gaming and memes. And in the podcast that we did together, she talked about how memes play a huge role in radicalization, especially to the far right and things like anti-vax and conspiracy theories and QAnon, because it brings you in 
it's short, it's snappy, it catches your attention, it makes you laugh, but it also has the element of plausible deniability. Like, you know, it's not serious, it's just a meme. And again, I think that's something that can't terrorism in the UK and in the US, but particularly in the UK, doesn't really know how to tackle, doesn't fully understand the power of a meme, as it were, as a, as a key radicalizer in all of this. And you wrote an article last year, which I'll link to in the, in the show notes, about um, how the pandemic almost had ideal conditions for radicalization, you know, anxiety and isolation, people being brought in online. So if you could talk a little bit more about that. The article I wrote was called who goes alt-right in a lockdown, which was like a little funny play on, you know, who goes Nazi in a occupation or something. I've forgotten the title. And it was, I suppose, a dark prediction because the lockdown was just starting back then that we needed to be really careful, essentially, with how we used isolation as a public health measure. Because yeah, as you put it so beautifully, we were creating ideal conditions for radicalization. Lack of social contact, lack of, you know, a kind of support network, lots and lots of time online, a constant awareness of one's own mortality, which will naturally happen when you have statistics of death and disease constantly circulating, a more urgent desire to check the news and to check what's going on in the outside world through the medium of the internet and especially social media. And yeah, I I said, you know, this is something, you know, we need to we need to think about. These are ideal conditions for radicalization. And I think what was interesting was I was half right and half wrong. Because I was specifically thinking about the far right or the alt right, I suppose, purely because those were who I'd been writing about and researching up until then. Actually I think what happened was a surge in interest in QAnon and anti-vax conspiracy theories from some very unlikely places, you know, from parenting groups and mothering groups and things like that. So I'm not blowing my own horn completely because that wasn't really what I predicted necessarily. But I think the reasons for why that I gave in that article were salient. Before we move on, can you tell our listeners because we talk a lot in this podcast about the far right and white supremacy, mm-hmm. but the term alt-right is not one that I use a lot. So um, for the listeners that are not familiar with what that means, can you explain that for us, please? Sure. So the alt-right is a slightly controversial term, which was used, I suppose, to describe this emergent movement from around 2015 onwards of very social media savvy, digital native far-right movement and figures like Richard Spencer sort of became to be kind of emblematic and had a huge influence from image boards such as 4chan. So the little 4chan mascot, so to speak, of Pepe the Frog also became very associated with it. It trafficked in a lot of the same rhetoric and imagery that we've been talking about. So very meme heavy, very irony heavy, but also kind of often quite deliberately sort of shocking and repulsive and you know, violent in terms of kind of language and imagery and indeed actions often on offline actions has been, you know, several kind of massacres and terrorist attacks associated with users who are kind of affiliated with the the term is controversial. I use it because I think it's useful in my own writing. For one thing, not to just keep on having to say the digital far right network can sort of become a bit clunky when you're delivering a paper or doing an interview like this, but also because I thought it was useful to describe a digital far right where 
format or the platform of the internet had affected the content and style that I was talking about. So I kind of use it as the shorthand essentially to explain that again without kind of having to keep on repeating myself there. But there are people who say, you know, that the alt-right as a term, you know, minimizes uh, what is essentially, you know, a neo-fascist movement. And I do have um, sympathies with that argument, definitely. But those are the reasons I use for using it. I also think that the arguments are not mutually exclusive because it's very Mm. clear when you're talking about the alt-right that you are talking about a neo-fascist movement. Mm. It's just a a nomenclature that makes it easier to understand in different contexts. But, you know, as academics can get into real arguments about definitions. (laughs) Oh, we love it. (laughs) <laughs> we do. It's, it's our bread and butter. I mean, I wrote my PhD on the definition of terrorism, so I could spend ages talking about definitions. But but I think it matters. It on the on. Hi, frenemies. First of all, I wanted to announce the date and time for our QAnon book club meeting. This is going to be on Saturday, the fourth of December at nine thirty p.m. I know it's a bit late, but I need to make sure that my baby is asleep before I do the book club, otherwise I won't be able to concentrate (laughs) on our discussion. I will send all of our monthly supporters the link to the Zoom meeting later on this week. If you want a taster of what the book club meetings are like, make sure to listen to next week's episode of the podcast. I know I said I'd released the bonus book club episode last week, but I just didn't have enough time to finish editing it. But now it's done and it will be released next Tuesday. To join our book club, just become a monthly supporter of the show over at Coffee. We are reaching the end of the first season of Enemies of the People, and I am hard at work on the second season already. There is so much I want to share with you, and I just cannot wait for it. Thank you so much for your support by listening to the show, downloading, sharing, rating, and reviewing us, and supporting us at Coffee. You have made our second season possible. And I want to say a special thank you to the newest members of our book club, our newest monthly supporters over at Coffee. So thank you so much, Levine, Jay and David. Your support really does mean the world to me. And I hope to meet you sometime in one of our book club meetings. I really look forward to seeing you and chatting with you then. Thank you so much. And now back to the show. I know you've done a lot of your work on on anti-feminism. How would you describe anti-feminism? What is it? So I use anti-feminism essentially to, I think, delineate the kind of uh, ideology I was talking about and distinguish it from things like post-feminism, you know, the kind of understanding that, you know, feminism was once good or, you know, feminism was once necessary, but its work is over now. Women are pretty much equal or kind of, I suppose, just feminism ambivalence, which you is mostly common sentiment, you know, people just sort of don't really think about it that one way or another. I used it to describe a kind of social tendency on the internet that was explicitly opposed to either feminism or women's liberation movements, or I suppose these kind of um, progressive movements, which included feminism. So, you know, I'm thinking about things like LGBTQ activism and things like that, but explicitly opposed it on anti-feminist grounds and on the sense that this was seeking domination for women. So that was the kind of way I used that term for my PhD thesis. When we talk about anti-feminism, we can easily see the connections with the intel community and the far right and male violence and all of it. 
What about the role of women in anti-feminism? I know you've written an article about trad wives. <laughs> yes. And um, so we, we can talk about that a bit because there's a lot on a, a white Christian fundamentalist understanding of womanhood that plays a key role in all this. I'm really glad you asked about the role of women in anti-feminist movements because it was certainly something uh, when I was writing my PhD thesis, I was began it in 2016. I felt there really wasn't a lot of good writing or even writing that particularly broached the topic of you know that the fact that there were women in anti-feminist or reactionary networks and movements and they were often i felt think felt like this slightly inconvenient factor in these movements success that i think people weren't quite willing to address because i think they had this they gave a slightly uncomfortable association with the argument at the time which was these are just movements of sexist men who are just really unhappy that feminism is progressing you know we're getting more equal every day and the patriarchy is on its last legs it sounds very naive and silly but it was a really very common theme in lots of kind of liberal pro-feminist outlets um thinking of even places like the guardian and new statesman and yeah jezebel and things like that and so women in these movements often were either kind of dismissed with this slightly like kind of false consciousness argument, you know, they, they're just really deluded. They just leave the kind of patriarchal message or just more commonly just ignored outright, you know. And I felt like this was a real mistake because women to both digital anti-feminist sort of campaigns and later the alt-right were a really important asset for both of those movements. They And they are indeed for pre-internet fascist movements, reactionary movements in general, they are often and historically have been incredibly important in yeah, neo-Nazi street gangs, in 1930s fascist movements in Europe, in the KKK. And so it was doing, I think it felt like it was doing a bit of a historical disservice to ignore the fact that these women were in these movements now and were performing a really important social role. Not just one of shielding, although that was important. It makes the movement seem a bit less scary, a bit less violent when women are involved. We naturally let our guard down a little bit. Actually, I shouldn't say naturally. That makes it me sound like a bioessentialist. But we do, we do let our guard down a little bit when we see that women are involved in a movement. But also in terms of recruitment and social propagation, women are often very important and they do uh, a lot of important administrative work as well and lots of lots of organizations and movements so yeah so I suppose my my point was you know actually we should look at how these women operate within these um, spaces and it often seemed like a pretty tough gig to be honest in particularly in digital anti-feminist networks I often thought I had intended in my thesis to actually write half of my chapter about the figureheads, the women who kind of sort of became fame in these movements and little sort of mini celebrities, and then another half about the ordinary female users. And I actually found that it was incredibly difficult to write about the ordinary female users because very few of them stuck around for as long as I needed them to, to gain enough kind of like data from them. Often I would make a note of some usernames and then come back in three months and they just stopped posting or they deleted their account time and time again. And I started to realize that actually this was probably a finding in itself, right? 
that it was really difficult to, especially without the kind of privileges, and it's not all privileges of kind of micro-celebrity, that these places were pretty hostile to women, especially if you were just an ordinary user and didn't have any kind of safe support network, I suppose. What is a traditional wife? So a traditional wife or a trad wife, which is nearly always how it gets shortened, a, I suppose, kind of disparate network of largely women who advocate that women that women themselves are happier living what they call a kind of traditional marital lifestyle so this means marrying young having lots of children staying at home confining oneself to the the domestic sphere and i got a and i got in a little bit of um, hot water when i wrote about this cuz people kind of assumed i was talking about stay at home mums and I sort of thought, well, no, if I'd been writing about stay-at-home mothers, I would have said stay-at-home mothers. I mean, trad wife. I mean, this very specific internet culture, as opposed to just the act of staying at home with your children, which plenty of women do. It's a, a really ordinary lifestyle. But I specifically was talking about the, the, the digital subculture, so to speak, advocated this on very strong terms, usually. And you will see kind of more, I suppose, kind of ordinary sort of mummy bloggers and stuff like that who do live this lifestyle, but aren't really advocating it. So that's quite an important distinction. You know, the difference between this works for me and this is a kind of political position I hold, I think is quite significant. Specifically, I wrote about them in, I think, 2018, might have been earlier, and about their their associations with an almost overlap with the alt-right, who of course were very interested in this subculture, which they hoped could provide both an access point for women to be involved with the alt-right network, which didn't sort of work against their um, beliefs of kind of women not really being involved in politics, but also as a kind of idealization and aspirational mode for all women to be involved in which they hoped would undo the work of feminism that had corrupted in their eyes so many young women. Also played to their racial anxieties as well, because the most popular trad wife influencers remain young white women with lots and lots of white children. So this sort of seemed kind of significant to their kind of fears about racial replacement and yeah, all of these kind of white genocide conspiracy theories, which are such a recurrent anxiety on the far right. There is this um, YouTube channel that I love and I've been following for years. I don't know if you know of it. It's called Fundy Fridays, which is, I, I love Fundy Fridays. And uh, there are lots of episodes that she does on, on, on trad wives and on white fundamentalist Christian women who are at the forefront of this anti-feminism movement. And some of them are that I can think of the top of my head are like a girl defined, which is about modesty, but also the role of women in a marriage and the idea that women are supposed to be a helpmeet, that we were created by God to be helpmeets to men. So it's, it is very much not this post-feminism, as you say, you know, the feminism is over and done. We've managed, let's move on. It's the opposite of it is arguing against it is saying that, no, we're not, equal because we were not created equal. We were created to fulfill these different roles. How much of this movement, because I know most of it from the context of studying white evangelical Christianity and fundamentalism in the US, how much of this movement, this Stradwife anti-feminism movement, do you think there's a crossover with um, with the UK? Is it just an American thing or is it 
finding roots here in the UK too. I have seen British tradwife influencers and Canadian as well. I haven't come across any Australians, but I'm sure they're out there. But largely it does seem to gain more traction in America. I think possibly purely because of that much stronger religious association that there is in America, whereas evangelical Christianity, although it exists in this country, certainly doesn't kind of have the same cultural hold or even though, you know, the evangelical cultural hold in America has been diminishing for some time, it doesn't even have a history of a very strong cultural hold, except in parts of Northern Ireland, I should say, where evangelical Christianity still can be quite dominant in some districts, but then on the mainland, less so. When you said in your article about the pandemic being the, the, the lockdown being perfect for uh, perfect conditions for radicalization and that you thought this would be more you know the alt-right QAnon types but you were surprised in the end to see it was a lot of mommy bloggers and a lot of, of parenting going into it what is it about a QAnon in particular that attracts now this kind of influencer this kind of influencer this kind of interest from mommy bloggers and the like it's such an interesting question about that that link, particularly in the UK, between mothers and QAnon. And I think, you know, there's a really easy answer, which I think is certainly true in part, which is that as QAnon travels abroad from the US, it naturally diminishes its association with President Donald Trump, who does not have the same kind of personal identification significance for people in the UK or in, in any country, really, other than the US. And what people are naturally more interested in is the allegations, lurid allegations of child sacrifice and trafficking. And this is naturally what people who will not be particularly pacified by the idea that the then president is sorting it all out. You know, to them, he's a foreign president. It doesn't kind of quite have the same who, you know, they didn't even have the chance to vote for. So they don't kind of quite have that same link to it. And then, so the argument goes, you know, naturally, who is going to be the most worried about, you know, child trafficking and child abuse and all of these things while it will be. And I think that's part of the story, but I don't think it's all of it. There's also the argument that you say, you know, in England, you know, when you talk about child trafficking and child abuse, this then links to historic British crimes, things like Jimmy Savile, the alleged association of Prince uh, Andrew with Epstein, all this sort of stuff that is very fresh on British people's minds. And again, that if you're a sex abuse survivor, you're more likely to be a woman in this country. And again, there's this connection. So I think these are, these are good arguments. I think they're probably true for the most part. But I also think there's something going on with social media and how QAnon spread on social media, because many platforms were very, very quick to crack down on QAnon. Reddit was instantaneous, you know. It was at one point the biggest hub for QAnon discussion outside of 4chan. And almost overnight, they wiped it completely clean. You know, they really scorched the earth in terms of QAnon discussion. And a little bit later and a little bit less effectively, other social media platforms followed suit. So Twitter, for example, and I think places like this. But the last holdouts were Facebook and Instagram, who continually and, and still continue to not really get a hold of the problem on, the, on their platforms. And I remember as late as August last year, they were 
doing these really, I thought, weak half measures of deleting some of the 10 biggest groups, but then not really allowing for the fact that most of the people in those groups could quite easily just make another one, you know. And Instagram, obviously, it has a female user base, but also I think they had on both Instagram and Facebook some very effective networks which were not set up around QAnon per se but around things sort of related things well not quite so related things but things like yoga MLMs vitamin groups you know clean eating and of course parenting and the parenting groups this stuff took hold on really really rapidly and some of the parenting groups on Facebook they have millions of members they're they're huge and the constant you know the content is constantly churning through and the moderators for them or the admins are just volunteers, you know, and they may not necessarily recognize what QAnon content is, particularly if it doesn't announce itself as QAnon, which most of them learned not to do. So I was seeing in lots of Facebook parenting groups I was in, these very, to me, as a researcher, very naked allusions to, you know, demonic child sacrifice and stuff like that. But it completely passed people by because it looked like, as many parenting groups do, already have the quite normal sort of watch out you know for this kind of symbol or something and be sure not to kind of feed your child this and sort of stuff it looked like an ordinary parenting warning and it was only kind of when you watched it and delved a little deeper you were like oh this is QAnon you know this is (laughs) this is masked but not particularly sophisticatedly masked QAnon kind of rhetoric and so I think it just tore through those groups particularly virulently I wonder as well if um, one of the reasons why QAnon and, and movements like that have been so successful on Instagram and Facebook as well, not just because you said, you know, Instagram is primarily, the user base is primarily female and it because it's a very visual medium and mm. linking back to what we were saying about the, the trad wives and, and women in anti-feminism and women in, in the alt-right, you do get these images of these perfect women, perfect looking women blonde, skinny, tanned and blue-eyed with rows and rows of blonde, blue-eyed children presenting this lifestyle that I can imagine looks really attractive. And huge precedence is given to video as well on Facebook is something I notice every time I'm using it. Video content is always bumped to the top, uh, which allowed a lot of QAnon influencers, even when they were banned from places like YouTube, to very easily spread their content. And we know that Facebook, as you said, doesn't do a very good job of tackling this kind, to, to put it mildly, let's yeah. put it of, of, of tackling this kind of content in their platform. And I mean, you're, I don't imagine you'll see people who are on Mumsnet and, and other groups going, you know, into Gab or HN or things like that. <laughs> They're going to be getting their information from Facebook and from Instagram. And a lot of it is, I suppose... Um, cloaked under this pretty images of women and their perfect children or cloaked behind memes that are funny and have this level of um, deniability. I also wanted to ask, what are the links, if any, between the anti-vax movements and anti-vax? I know we we touched on this already, but I wanted to be more explicit in talking about the links between the anti-vax movement and QAnon and the alt-right and, and even anti-feminism and all this, because these all seems like exist in multiple overlapping Venn diagrams. We're not talking about distinct things here. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you research one, you will find yourself slipping into some of the other. Impossible as a researcher to not fall from one one conspiracy theory, one reactionary movement into another when you're on these sites. And it's definitely what happened to me. I went from anti-feminism to the alt-right, to QAnon, to anti-vax. And it was almost a very natural progression because lots of the users I was monitoring and lots of the influencers I was monitoring were doing the same thing. You know, These people are professionals at the end of the day. Many of them make money this way. And they would be foolish not to follow the next trend, just like a fashion influencer would, yeah, get into a certain kind of hat one season, really showing how little I know about fashion there. So you you follow influencers, you you see where they start to move next, you see what interests them, and they are as well, should be noted, I often think the word influencer is a little bit misleading because of course they are influenced as well, they're influenced by their audience, they are aware that they have to follow what their audience is interested in to keep up their numbers, to keep up their views. And But this isn't to say that the original movement there from dies, so to speak. It doesn't just kind of wither and, and go away now that the new thing is QAnon and the new thing is anti-vax. And in fact, I think they often leave their imprint on each one as they go. It's impossible to miss in the current day anti-vax movement the influence of QAnon. The influence of talk of, you know, satanic paedophiles is everywhere in anti-vax movements. The anti-Semitism, which is so closely associated with the alt-right, but also just conspiracy theories in general, let's be honest. But I think it does have a very distinctive alt-right flavour in QAnon and in anti-vax. The villainization of George Soros, for instance, comes from an old alt-right conspiracy theory that he was, you know, promoting all of these kind of quote-unquote degenerate influences in western life to you know weaken the west so all of these yeah all of these movements they flow into one another but they also take influence from one another and you can really see this actually when you start to look at reactionary movements outside the anglosphere for instance when you look at reactionary movements in india and things like that and you see how all of these things that you just assumed to be normal or standard to an anti-vax movement, for instance, or a movement that's anti one particular ethnic minority or anti-refugees is not standard at all. It's actually very culturally and I think internetly specific or specific to this corner of the internet that it's grown out from because they're so different in different countries. I wanted (laughs) to ask you kind of to make another prediction. Let's just, you know, put our Let's put our, our tinfoil hats on mm. since we're talking about conspiracy theories and, and all of it. Based on everything that you're seeing online and in your research and the world around us, what do you think the near future of QAnon, anti-vaxxers, the alt-right is? Do you think it is going to be dragged further into the mainstream, that the mainstream is going to embrace it more? Do you think it's going to be properly tackled? Where do you see this going? I love to make predictions. <laughs> They're very rarely correct, or at least correct in the way that I think they'll be. So my prediction is that the next big move on behalf of conspiracy movements will be climate change denial. And I don't think this will occur in the way that we think of climate change denial as, you know, a guy who 
is clearly working for Exxon, you know, saying, well, the science isn't settled kind of thing. I think what climate change denial will look like in new conspiracy movements is actually nothing to do with the facts of climate change themselves, but that much of the same arguments that we're seeing over things like lockdown and vaccines, this kind of question of control, of genocide, of, you know, the kind of secret war that's going on will be moved to green policies and green proposal. And even to simple things like lifestyle changes, this will all be, I think, assumed to be a kind of sinister act of governmental control. And I think you can see the seeds of this in a lot of what the content they put out already. Um, and things like this kind of discussion of the Great Reset, which was a World Economic Forum proposal, which was actually talking specifically about sustainable development post-pandemic. You see it in alt-right reactions to things like those sort of silly articles, which say, is the secret to eating the low-meat diet, eating bugs? And they all say this, and I, I won't eat the bugs. This is all, you know... A, degenerate ploy by NWO and all this kind of stuff. But I think all of this is pointing to the same thing, that we are really actually unprepared, I think, as the case for climate change action just gets more and more apparent, more and more urgent, as climate change activists themselves often become more direct in their tactics and get more headlines. I think this is we are almost sleepwalking into the next big conspiracy movement and uh, fueled by, as all of these things always are, fueled by the culture war, fueled by a mainstream culture war, which we'll talk about anything but the actual issues, so, you know, being, <laughs> being thrown up by these movements. Yeah, well, we're the members of the deep woke here, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, deep woke or deep state, depending on who you ask. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and thank you so much. We could have been, we could talk for ages. Yeah, and no, thank you. Those were fantastic questions. I really had fun. Thank you. I'm glad we managed to finally do it. <laughs> finally, yeah. <laughs> That was Dr. Annie Kelly. You can find her on Twitter at N-E-K-N-K. Make sure to check out her podcasts, QAnon Anonymous and Vaccine, A Human History. This is the last official episode of the first season of Enemies of the People. Thank you to everyone who bought me a coffee or became monthly supporters of the show, and everyone who has listened, shared, rated, reviewed us, and just engaged with us. You have enabled me to produce a second season of the show, which will launch early in the new year. I am going to spend my Christmas weeks recording, editing, and producing the new episodes, as well as getting some surprises ready for the new year. But our first season is not quite finished yet. We have two more bonus episodes that will be released in the next two weeks, so stay tuned. Remember, our Frenemies book club will meet on the 4th of December, so you'll still have time to join our QAnon discussion. Just head over to Coffee, and the link will be on the episode description. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People. <laughs>